welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to Cool Cities, an episode of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Cynthia Harris, and I'm Deputy Director of EOI Center for State, Tribal, and Local Environmental Programs. We're recording this episode on a chilly November day, but I still remember this past July when it hit about 100 degrees Fahrenheit here in D.C. It was hot. In fact, July was the hottest month in recorded history, and nine of the 10 warmest years have occurred since 2005. Think about that. Heat waves are growing longer, hotter, and more frequent due to climate change. And cities, cities are particularly impacted because climate change exacerbates something called the urban heat island effect. That means local governments are on the hook for preparing for the serious public health impacts. But what are some of the tools that are available to them? It's a public health crisis. Even now, extreme heat kills more people than any other natural disaster. Today, we're joined by three experts to weigh in on one possible solution, air conditioning or AC. Some cities with historically high temperatures, think Phoenix, Dallas, already require landlords provide tents with AC units. But what if the rest of the U.S. followed suit? Are AC ordinances actually effective in addressing extreme heat? And what are the obstacles and consequences of implementing them? Let's introduce today's three guests, each with expertise in different aspects of this issue, the science, the law, and the politics. And may I say, this is a very cool panel. Rachel Licker is a senior client scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's also an author of a recent report titled Killer Heat in the United States, Climate Choices and the Future of Dangerously Hot Days. It's a great read. I recommend you check it out. Michael Gerard is a professor at Columbia Law School and faculty director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. It's fair to say he's a big celebrity in the climate change world. Michael recently authored Heat Waves, Legal Adaptation to the Most Lethal Climate Disaster so far. Finally, we're privileged to be joined by Councilmember Tom Hucker from Montgomery County, Maryland, not far from where we're sitting in D.C. right now. Councilmember Hucker is sponsoring Bill 2419, which would require landlords in the county to provide and maintain air conditioning in rental units. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. First off, let's set the stage and address the science and trends behind ex extreme heat in urban areas. Rachel, could you share some of the major findings from killer heat? The, the forecasts are really quite alarming for urban dwellers, I understand. Yes. So our results show that failing to reduce heat trapping emissions would lead to a staggering expansion of dangerous heat across the United States. Um, and this is in contrast with if we took aggressive action to reduce emissions that would limit global warming to um, the classic two degrees C Celsius target of the Paris Climate Agreement or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. 
um, which could contain that expansion and spare millions of people in the United States from the threat of relentless summer heat. Um, so some of the main things that we found in our report was that, for example, with no action to reduce global warming gases by mid-century, the number of days with a heat index above 105 degrees Fahrenheit would, would quadruple around the country. Um, and that would uh, cause more than 150 of our larger cities uh, to experience an average of 30 or more days per year with a heat index above 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So really, uh, again, a staggering expansion and very large increases of prolonged exposure to extreme heat in places that, as you said, um, are already vulnerable. And I saw online using your very nifty online gadget that here in D.C. you can expect about 48 days over 100 degrees by the end of the century. Is that right? That's right. Um, and again, in a pathway in which we did not take action on climate change. Um, and a, one thing that's important to note is in our study, we didn't consider any further urbanization or further expansion of the urban heat island effect. So in places like Washington, D.C. and cities across the country, it's possible that some of our results are even potentially conservative. So some of the numbers could actually be worse because of further urbanization in the future. And that brings me to an important, actually a critical issue that been, uh, has been brought up by many public health officials, and that is how extreme heat impacts particularly vulnerable residents who can't so easily adapt. Would you be able to give us a sense of who these populations, who these people are, and how they would be affected? Across the United States, there are certain populations that are uniquely uh, and consistently vulnerable to extreme heat. So for example, um, we know that heat exacerbates pre-existing health conditions like cardiovascular and respiratory disease, um, which oftentimes uh, leads to more elderly individuals being more vulnerable. Um, we know that heat disproportionately affects low-income communities and communities of color that have been historically mar marginalized, um, who live in riskier areas on average and have disproportionately lower access to quality health care. And as a result, there's ample research that shows that these communities disproportionately suffer heat-related illness. I could go on and on. There are a lot of different parts of the U.S. public, including children um, and even people in prison um, who don't actually have any air conditioning um, that are disproportionately vulnerable. It's quite insidious. I can imagine how this would impact people with disabilities who might not be able to access, say, cooling centers and people who are homeless or experiencing homeless, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and with respect to disabilities, um, you can think of both um, physical and mental. Um, so the ability to physically uh, move yourself into a safer place and the ability to make sense of what's happening and be able to know that there is a threat and act in response to it. Um, added to that issue, uh, there are a number of pharmaceuticals that um, increase the risk of heat-related illness. Uh, for example, beta blockers um, that can help people with high blood pressure or uh, a number of antidepressants interfere with the body's ability to cool itself. Um, and so people who may have, you know, issues that are taking those medicines are also at disproportionate risk. 
This is very helpful, and I'll, I'll mention a little aside that you're absolutely right about those medications. I have family members who uh, didn't realize that when they decided to take hot yoga, which was not a very smart idea. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> we, we live and learn, but that's, that's a very important point. And, and we'll turn, turn to Michael now. Cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles are rolling out initiatives like cool roofs, cool pavement, enhancing the urban tree canopy. But one potential tool less discussed is air conditioning. So far, just a handful of cities have passed laws requiring landlords to provide AC, or more precisely, to ensure temperatures don't exceed a certain maximum temperature, usually around 78 or 80 degrees. Michael, you've conducted extensive research on how cities adapt to extreme heat, including these ordinances. What's been your experience? So, the, as you say, there are very few cities that have adopted these air conditioning ordinances. Um, the principal concern about them is the effect on the, the, the cost of housing and who's going to pay for it. Obviously, the landlords want to pass the costs along to the tenants, and especially if it is um, uh, low-income housing, that poses real burdens. And so I think more widespread adoption of this will depend in part on getting uh, on having governmental subsidies for, for some of these expenses. Uh, as you say, there are a number of cities that have adopted ordinances aimed at the urban heat island effect. Uh, several are requiring that uh, new buildings have either green roofs or white roofs or solar PV on, their, uh, on the roofs. Um, there's also a lot more attention to, um, to urban trees, to street planting or putting plants at a higher elevation and all of that uh, can make a real difference in terms of the temperature that people experience. And you forecast some of my questions about other types of laws. Which which ones do you see as being most successful so far? Um, well, I wouldn't say that any of them have been extraordinarily successful on a widespread basis. I think that the, in those few places that have air conditioning ordinances, um, uh, they seem to work in, in these very limited locations. But uh, uh, and, and the, the growth of uh, expansion of, of street trees uh, in New York City, Mayor Bloomberg set up a one million tree uh, objective that was uh, met and exceeded early. And so Mayor de Blasio is now uh, doing more of that. So I think that is all going in the right direction, as are the efforts in some cities, including in New York, to require special kind of roof treatments. Councilmember Hucker, what are you seeing in Montgomery County in terms of how your constituents are being affected by extreme heat? Well, I don't think it's dissimilar to other um, other cities and other areas of the country, but um, like a lot of areas that have um, both a dense population in an urban area and um, aging buildings, we you know the the combination of those two factors can be can be very uncomfortable, can be even deadly at times. Um, Urban areas that are all, you know, heavily paved and, and uh, in some cases darker colors if they're full of asphalt um, or black roofs of commercial or multifamily properties can act as heat islands uh, where you don't have enough parks and other uh, green spaces to break it up. Um, and we have a lot of uh, multifamily buildings that were built in the 50s and 60s and 70s that uh, either don't have air conditioning or what's more common is they don't have effective air conditioning. Um, so we have an, an awful lot of tenants that are in, um, are facing very high heat whenever our, our, um, 
our heat climbs into the night into the 90s, which is quite common in the D.C. area. And what was the main driver behind the bill? You mentioned the impact on what you're seeing with with your constituents, but could you walk us through a bit of the history and where the bill is now? I've been involved in tenant issues for a long time, going back to when I was a community organizer in this area. And the on the previous council before this past year, um, the current county executive served on the council, and he and I um, worked together on a bill he sponsored to improve uh, conditions for tenants. And that bill languished for a long time until there was a fatal fire and explosion in my district. And that created enough um, impetus for the council to pass this sweeping reform that improved the lives of all the tenants in Montgomery County uh, by setting up an inspection system to force our housing department to inspect all the rental units in the county and to categorize the buildings in the county as either compliant, at risk, or problem properties, and then uh, an inspection regime that um, uh, mandated annual inspections of problem properties, biannual inspections of at-risk ones, and more forgiving uh, inspection uh, schedule for the the, the better maintained ones. So in the effort to, um, once that bill passed, there has been a surge in inspections of our problem properties, many of which are in my district. I represent about a fifth of Montgomery County, but have about 200,000 immediate constituents. Many of them are in these these old housing uh, uh, buildings. And um, we, you know, many of them were facing vermin and mold and other things, but many of them also complain about failing air conditioning. And that's been going on for years, but um, once we had passed the sweeping um, bill, we, we realized that air conditioning isn't required in our housing code. Other things like vermin and mold, you know, are named in there as problems, but we, we do require heat, but we don't require air conditioning. Um, and I think that's sort of a, an anachronism of a, a bygone time when, you know, few, many fewer people were, would die of, of cold, but not of heat. So um, that's, that's sort of the impetus of the bill to, uh, to do a standalone bill to require air conditioning. And currently it's working its way through the committee process as of the time of this recording. What are the next steps? The committee will have its third work session on the bill, and I expect it to pass out at that time. And then it'll go to the full council probably two weeks later, and I expect it to pass the full council in the, probably in the posture that it comes out of the committee. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's talk about some of the obstacles these types of ordinances face in implementation and some potential solutions. First, let's address the elephant in the room. AC requires energy. We have a Department of Energy report from 2015 showing that heating, ventilation, and air conditioning accounts for about 35% of total building energy consumption. And the council member mentioned some of these older buildings, which are probably not quite as energy efficient as newer construction right now. If your power isn't generated by renewables, cranking up the AC can actually increase greenhouse gases, contributing to the climate change impacts you were talking about earlier. Rachel, could you explain a bit about how this cycle works? During extreme heat events, as a result of increased energy demand to power air conditioning units, the dirtiest power plants, known as peaker plants, are typically brought online. And there's new research from the University of Wisconsin that forecasts that in a warming world, as a result of increases in air conditioning um, use 
fine particulate matter and ground level ozone air pollution will increase, um, which the study forecast would cause an additional 1,000 deaths in the eastern United States by mid-century. Um, and as you mentioned, at the same time, the increased air conditioning use doesn't only uh, increase ambient air pollution in an immediate extreme heat event, it also increases the amount of greenhouse gas emissions, which further contributes to global warming and further increases kind of this, as you mentioned, cycle of more extreme heat events, uh, intensifying, uh, increasing in duration and um uh, and affecting more places and communities. Um, and act- I should also say that we could break this cycle and have a win-win-win for climate change, air pollution, and human health if we did invest in clean energy in different communities. So we're not bringing these kinds of peaker plants online, but instead in the wake or of, pardon me, instead uh, in the midst of an extreme heat event, we could be relying on more clean, renewable energy resources. And if I could add, in addition, uh, we could have more energy efficient air conditioners. The federal government has right. the authority to uh, set uh, energy efficiency standards for appliances, including air conditioners. There are some standards in the U.S., but they are weaker than those in some other countries. And so the average air conditioner that's sold in the U.S. is less efficient than the average air conditioner sold in Europe, Japan, and South Korea and China. So this is another opportunity to uh, reduce the adverse environmental impact from the generation of the electricity to provide air conditioning. That's a great point. And, you know, that also brings up, um, you know, something that the Union of Concerned Scientists has been advocating this year for um, in in different congressional offices, um, and that's uh, tax incentives for these kinds of more energy efficient appliances, um, which have been rolled back. Um, I can even speak personally. My sister let me know this summer she was interested in buying an energy efficient air conditioning unit in upstate New York. And she found out that the tax incentives no longer existed and she didn't have the means to buy a more expensive air conditioning unit that was more energy efficient. Um, and so you see these kinds of middle class and lower income families that would be faced with, the, um, you know, a burden. Um, and and so those kinds of tax incentives would be really important to uh, drive innovation and drive energy efficiency standards um, higher. And an additional pollution impact of air conditioning is the uh, leakage of HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. are powerful right. greenhouse gases. And so the uh, EPA had attempted to uh, uh, impose some new regulations on that. That was blocked by the uh, D.C. Circuit in 2017 in a decision written by then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Um, but that's another area, that's an area where Congress can act. And, and that's, this is also an area where we don't have federal preemption. So states do have the authority to impose their own standards on HFCs. California has begun to do that, uh, but that ought to become more widespread. And, and uh, one of the important sources of HFCs is air conditioners. These are, they're all excellent po- points. And when it comes to air conditioning or the efficiency of air conditioners, we talked a bit about what the federal government can do. I think we could talk a little bit about what the state government can do. Are there any actions that local governments can take to help with that since we do have the council member here? Well, of, of course, ordinances of the sort that the councilman is advancing are one very important way to do that. 
if you want me to jump in, I, I've had, um, I've actually had, um, you know, some, some, um, conservative, I, I wouldn't even call them opponents of the bill because they're not really engaged, but, um, you know, callers or, or, uh, people tweet in, uh, well, isn't this hypocritical? If you say you care about, uh, climate change, why are you putting this bill in? All of us care about climate change. We're not going to solve it by, you know, denying safe housing to poor people and immigrants, obviously. So, um, um, you're exactly right. Um, there's there's a lot to be gained by getting um, old air conditioners uh, and their CFCs out of service and replaced by newer, much more efficient and, and more climate friendly ones. Um, we also are trying to make more tax credits and other incentives available for building owners to um, retrofit their buildings. And, you know, this bill isn't happening in a vacuum. I'm actually trying to roll out a whole um local version of the Green New Deal, essentially, to both deal with climate and create jobs. And a big part of that is addressing carbon from our buildings, which is over a third of our carbon, um, through uh, benchmarking and then deep energy retrofits of a lot of these older buildings. Um, and some of it is adaptation measures, like the air conditioning bill, to keep our families safe um, while we're doing everything we can to um, mitigate the, uh, the impacts of, uh, of uh, climate change. Another kind of action that could be taken at the state or city level concerns modifications to landlord-tenant law. Um, every state uh, has either by common law or statute the warranty of habitability um, for uh, for tenants. And uh, traditionally, that is only applied to supplying heat and water and, and some other things. But that could be expanded to apply to uh, to cooling in in particular uh, situations. So even if you don't explicitly require air conditioning, uh, you can you can say that it's a violation of the landlord's obligations if uh, if they don't provide some form of cooling. And as Rachel said, with all of these tools available on the local, state, and federal level, we could hopefully end up with a win-win-win situation for tenants and for the wider environment. But if you build it, Will they come? It costs money to run the AC. In 2018, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which just goes to show you there's a federal agency for just about everything, they reported AC accounts for about 12% of U.S. home energy expenditures. In hot human regions, it can account for 27%. That's over a quarter. This means landlords are passing along the costs through rent or tenants have to pay higher electricity bills directly. Now, the federal government funds state low-income home energy assistance programs. Now, that's a mouthful, so we call it LIHEAP. And this assists low-income families with paying their energy bills. But the overwhelming majority of funding goes to heating homes in the winter, and only 18 states plus D.C. provide cooling assistance. And money usually goes to buying rather than to operating AC. Michael, you've addressed these programs, and Killer Heat notes that one in three U.S. households already struggle to afford the cost of energy. Michael, can you talk about how these programs work and what the gaps are when it comes to cooling? Uh, yes, well, many states, as you say, have these low-income energy assistance programs that typically apply to heat, and they do apply to the oil or gas or electric bills that people have to spend, uh, have to pay to pay for their heat. Uh, but a few of the states apply these programs to uh, cooling, and those that do, it's mostly to buy the air conditioner 
projects rather than run them. The cost of running an air conditioner can be very high, and there are quite a few low-income families that own an air conditioner, but they can't afford to run it. Um, These programs should be modified, in my view, to uh, provide for uh, funding both to buy air conditioners and to run them, in view of what uh, Rachel has, has said about the tremendous health threats caused by extreme heat. I think this is an area where we need to go. Are there any potential solutions? Well, the potential solutions are in the hands of the states on how they want to spend the money. Fair enough. And Councilmember Hucker, what are some strategies you and Montgomery County are looking at to help make AC more affordable for tenants? Incentivizing, you know, landlords to replace these old inefficient ones with with uh, more efficient ones. Uh, we we found, you know, there's very few buildings that I think have no air conditioning, but a lot that have very old, ineffective ones. And I think with the requirement, that's going to incentivize landlords to make the investment in, in newer, more efficient ones. Um, Maryland as a state has, uh, while it has a, a LIHE program, it pays not for, you know, the particular appliance, but it, it pays uh, low income customers electric or gas bills. Um, and so for qualifying customers, they can get um, the um, uh, a, a check sent directly to the utility um, to cover arrearages. So that's that's one of the buffers that we have, at least in Maryland. And as of the time of this recording, the Planning, Housing, and Economic Development Committee was considering an opt-out provision for tenants. Is that right? On to my bill? Yes. Oh, an opt-out of. Oh, if a tenant wants to keep their own uh, costs low, they could opt it. Yeah, I think we might. Um, we will, we, you know, we're going to discuss it again in committee. Um, I'm, I'm a little um, concerned about sort of a blanket provision. Um, while able-bodied uh, tenants, you know, might uh, see the advantages in just opting out. I'm a little worried about the uh, opportunities it might give landlords for, to take advantage of um, some tenants that, uh, you know, we have a lar- very large immigrant community. We have a lot lot that are not proficient in written English. Um, I think it would be easy in the rush to sign um, all the complicated documents and, and very long leases that we're, we present people with to sign away your rights in a way that you might later regret. So um, I, I think we, you know, I, I would prefer to see language that says something about the, you know, um, the control of the tenant to uh, the, the ability of the tenant to control um, his or her temperature in the unit. Um, many that have individual thermostats or, or window units will have that ability. And if they, you know, they control it themselves, then, yeah, it would take the light. I'm fine taking the liability away from the landlord if the tenant is voluntarily lowering, you know, raising their own heat. That's a very interesting point since I read from what I read the recent possibilities of an opt-out, the safeguards would mostly be written into the lease. So you're, you bring up a very interesting point about people who are not as familiar with the language, not as proficient in language, or might just rush through a very long lease agreement. So that's an interesting point there. Let's talk about some other cool tools available to local governments. What other kinds of laws can cities enact? Uh, Rachel, what tools are considered the most effective in the land use and public health context? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, stepping back and thinking about this conversation sort of in a larger context, you know, we're talking about ensuring uh, the access, uh, ensuring residents have access to cool temperatures to stay safe during a heat wave. Um, you know, so there are obviously we're, we're spending um, much of the conversation talking about getting people AC in their own homes. Um, but there also are communities that have cooling centers and, uh, you know, communities that are more accustomed to experiencing extreme heat have plans in place in which, um, you know, there are uh, maps, for example, where people can go in and see where the lo- local cooling centers are or calling um, uh, 411 to find this out. Um, so really ensuring that those kinds of measures are in place uh, around the country, you know, in places that aren't necessarily seeing themselves sort of as a uh, uh, a community that needs that kind of infrastructure. Um, also having better alert systems to let people know that they need to seek safety. Um, that's something that uh, the National Weather Service is currently working to improve through the Weather Ready Nation initiative, um, but is is something that I think it's important to think about how you know we have weather alerts for other hazards um, like tornadoes or flash flooding on our cell phones, is there any way to make use of those kinds of technologies to get the word out quickly to, to people? Um, uh, in addition, uh, it's important to also think about making sure that our energy infrastructure is able to withstand extreme heat effects in and of itself. Um, like here in Washington, D.C., last summer during a July heat wave, my own neighborhood suffered a power surge during uh, a heat wave when heat indices were above 110 degrees Fahrenheit and homes were without power for thousands of families for days on end in those kinds of conditions. Um, So kind of thinking about um, holistically how our communities are responding, there are a lot of different measures that can be taken. And, um, you know, just to underscore that one of the most important things that we also need to be thinking about is how we are subsequently reducing our greenhouse gas emissions to stave off the biggest increases in extreme heat in the future. Let me just add that electricity reliability, uh, as Rachel said, is extremely important because if the power goes out, so does the AC, and that can be a very dangerous situation. A few years ago, the New York Public Service Commission required Consolidated Edison Company to do a study on its vulnerability to heat waves as well as to various other climate worsened events. Uh, Con Ed is, is shortly going to be coming out with this with that study, and I expect that following up on that, it will be making a number of specific recommendations for how uh, the uh, power system can be rendered uh, less vulnerable to uh, going out in a heat wave. And that that's a really important point. And speaking of New York City and and going back to what we were talking about, about vulnerable populations, you have New York City has a Be a Buddy program, a pilot that's been rolling out in three neighborhoods where different neighborhood organizations identify and reach out to socially isolated individuals, which was a big issue in the 95 heat wave in Chicago. So there is really an expansive set of tools that can be used. And Michael, going back to you, and you touched on some different types of laws and programs that you would propose. Do you want to touch it to discuss them a bit more, flesh them out a bit? One kind of law that some cities have adopted that I think should be 
uh, adopted on a much broader basis would be on um, roofs, uh, that uh, roofs of new buildings should be either uh, painted white or they should have green roofs or they should have solar PV. Um, that, that's for, for new buildings. For existing buildings, uh, there ought to be, in my view, uh, at least incentives to retrofit buildings that are physically suitable for it, that have the right kinds of angles and so forth, uh, to in, install these kinds of uh, uh, additions. A white roof uh, uh, not only reduces the heat in the neighborhood, but it also significantly reduces the cooling demand within the building and allows for less energy uh, consumption for air conditioning. Uh, some cities are also becoming much more aggressive about uh, requiring uh, street trees and other kind of planning. A number of studies have shown that uh, that one uh, little recognized environmental justice issue is it tends to be a lot hotter in poor communities than in affluent communities because there's a higher ratio of pavement to greenery. And so one way to address that is governmental programs that uh, that plant a lot of trees and, and, and bushes and that kind of thing. And that's fascinating. And I believe from your article, you mentioned it could be up to 45 degrees cooler in the shade. Is that right? Yeah, it, it makes it makes all the difference in the world. And, and New York City has been very vigorous uh, with that. And a number of other cities are beginning to move in that direction. Yeah, you can think about, you know, back in the day when people didn't have air conditioning units, you know, you look at the design of cities and, you know, my dad grew up in the Bronx and, you know, he always talked about how when there were heat waves, you go to the park across the street that had benches under trees and sit out there. And, you know, so just really thinking about the kinds of tools that we readily have at hand that are um, kind of low hanging fruits to to get people into more comfortable environments quickly. And council member, is Montgomery looking into any of these types of ideas we've been discussing? Um, yeah, we have <clears throat> just in the last few years, um, last year I passed a bit, we, we've had a commercial PACE program, commercial property assessed clean energy program for a while. It did not apply to new construction. And so um, just last year I passed a bill to expand it to new construction as well. But we've We've expanded it to allow developers to, you know, uh, uh, access finances for financing for energy efficiency and renewable energy upgrades um, for things like green roofs. And, you know, we have there's a big gap between the ones who want to take advantage of it and the ones who don't. Even before that was done, we have uh, one manufacturing company, even in a dense urban area like Silver Spring that I represent, uh, named United Therapeutics. They make life saving drugs. But they, um, because of their social commitments, um, they built their new building this year, a um, 120,000 square foot building, uh, entirely net zero, uh, right in Silver Spring. And so it has over 3,000 solar panels producing over one megawatt, uh, enough to offset all the things going on inside there. And they have 52 geothermal wells drilled through the building as well, plus increased insulation and triple paned windows and electrochromic tinting glass, a lot of technologies that other buildings could be adopting right now. That's fascinating. And we'll be moving to the conclusion, but one thing that I think we touched on just a bit briefly earlier was technology. I understand Phoenix 
has, well, Phoenix has shade corridors, in fact, apps that will direct people to walk where it's shady. Uh, have any of you three seen anything uh, cutting edge like this that seems to have uh, promise? Well, the opposite of cutting edge is that it said that Napoleon had trees planted along uh, many of the long roads along which his soldiers would need to march in order to keep them cool. That's pretty nifty, and I think in your article you mentioned the value of passive cooling requirements, so learning learning from historic examples, too, as well. That's right. There was no such thing as air conditioning until um, the early part of the 20th century, and before that, lots of people lived in hot areas, and it was customary to design um, homes so that you'd have much better ventilation, you'd have better shading, you'd have other ways of coping with the heat. Um, there's no reason that that can't be uh, restored. And, and, you know, we see a few examples of these passive homes and zero, uh, zero electricity uh, uh, homes that uh, rely on these advanced, or not, not advanced, these really ancient uh, ventilation and shading techniques that are really very effective. Finally, if there's just one thing each of you wants our audience to really take away about this issue, what is it? We'll, we'll start with Rachel, then Michael, and finally the council member. Rachel? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the one thing that I would want to leave people with is that there is a lot of power in the choices that we make today. Um, if we choose to aggressively reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you know, we can stave off the biggest increases in extreme heat and uh, you know keep conditions such that we actually have um, room to adapt. You know, we're not creating a future that's so unrecognizable that we wouldn't even have you know, tools in hand to adapt. So I think that power and the choices and some element of hope, I think, is important um, because, you know, oftentimes in the climate change conversation, I think it can create a lot of despair. But I think empowering people to feel that there's something that we can do um, and, and be truthful with that, I, I think, is important. Michael? Despite our best efforts, extreme heat is going to uh, continue to be the most dangerous climate change problem in terms of actually leading to deaths, and, and that's going to get worse. And so I think that dealing with heat deserves a higher priority in the dialogue about how to cope with the climate change that we know is coming. Council member? You, you were nice enough to invite me mostly to talk about the, the uh, air conditioning requirement I have. and I. We approach that with the frame that in an, an age of climate change, um, our, our requirement to provide safe housing for people um, goes beyond a requirement to provide heat that we have to provide people air conditioning as well. We had 20 people in Maryland die this year um, due to extreme heat, many in their homes. And um, I think, you know, uh, allowing people um, access to a cool, uh, you know, cooler uh, living environment, whether it's indoor or outdoor, is going to have to be part of our climate adaptation strategies. Um, while we continue to do everything we can to reduce our carbon pollution, there's a lot of adaptation and resiliency approaches we are going to have to take, including um, stormwater management and preparing for flooding and other things to keep people safe during extreme weather events while we're doing everything we can to reduce our carbon uh, pollution. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Keeping cities cool remains a hot topic for policymakers and politicians in a world that's quickly heating up. Thank you, Rachel, Michael, and Councilor Hucker for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.